This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. The Hockey News Podcast is back. It's Matt Larkin here with Ryan Kennedy and Ken Campbell has returned. And a lot of stuff happening over the weekend. We have signings. We have the first coach firing of the year. And that is our first hot topic of the week. John Stevens of the Los Angeles Kings is out. The Kings announcing it on Sunday. And my question is, is this too little too late? Will firing Stevens change the problems in L.A.? Can this team be saved? Or do you think the Kings are doomed this year? Well... I mean, he got him into the playoffs last year. And, I mean, this is a – and we've discussed this before. This is a roster construction problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I was thinking this morning, you know, on the way here, and I was thinking, like, is there even one guy on that team that you would consider to be fleet of foot? Like, even one? Adrian Kempe. Yeah, okay. Adrian Kempe okay. is the guy. One. And, and right. I mean, Drew Doughty, he's still fleet enough. He's yeah, he's, mo- very mo- he's yeah. very mobile. Yeah, yeah, but but I don't know, if, but I don't know if you'd call him like a, a speedster, you know. And this is a team that plays the game at a pace that just doesn't work anymore. And uh, I mean, you could see it when the when the Kings were in Toronto here and they got beat and they weren't very good, and you could see how frustrated they were. And and I I asked like I asked Drew Doughty, I asked John Stevens, you know, is this team can this team compete in the in today's NHL? Are they fast enough? And, you know, they, they said they could, but you could tell they didn't really, they didn't really believe it. Sure. You know, because he talked about, you know, moving at a faster pace, moving the puck faster, all those things. Like, you know, I mean, you look in Montreal, Claude Julien, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to up the tempo this year. He wanted, he wanted them to play at a faster pace. They are playing at a faster pace, and they're better because they have the players who can do it. You know, they talked about doing that in L.A., of, you know, playing at a, at a higher tempo. But you can't. You, ha- you can only coach the players you have, right? And they just don't have that. Yeah. What I find pretty interesting about this scenario is, you know, Willie Desjardins comes in as the interim head coach, and it really feels like that's the ultimate interim. You know, like Willie Desjardins, he's he's going to be the caretaker for the rest of the season. But Marco Sturm coming in, yeah. it really seems like they're grooming him to be the next head coach to see. Can he be that guy at the NHL level? We saw what he did internationally with Germany. Obviously, a huge success there at the Olympics. So, it's almost like what they did, you know, with Ken Hitchcock and Mike Yo in St. Louis. Not that that went any better, yeah. but you know, the the idea was good. But now Marco Sturm gets a chance to see what pretty much an entire season is like, minus a month. And yeah, it's definitely a roster problem. If they get Jack Hughes. Maybe that problem's not so bad. I mean, yeah. the Kings could yeah. draft first overall, yeah, and that could. would change a lot. Right. Um, but for Sturm, I think this is a great opportunity to learn on the fly with zero expectation, and then, should that be the decision, go into the summer, figure out what you can do with a roster that is kind of entrenched due to contracts, yeah. but maybe he can at least start pulling them in the right direction. Right, and you use the word entrenched, and that's the one thing that worries me a bit about the Kings. I worry this team is heading towards the Detroit zone, where they are still going to be bogged down by some right. veteran contracts for their slower guys. And historically, we had a, a guy at the Hockey News do a numbers crunch few years ago, and historically, new coaches almost always do produce a spike temporarily. It's almost an emotional lift in the standings. So I worry that the Kings might still get in their own way. I still think they carry themselves with this mentality that they're a winning team, a cup contending team. And I don't know if they're going to finish last overall. I don't know if they're going to have the most lottery balls, which could be a problem. Unless, and this is a surprise bonus hot take, Ooh. if you're Drew Doughty, do you kind of suddenly regret signing that extension, looking ahead at the future of this team? And do you wonder, hmm, who's a fast player that might be available that the LA Kings could really use? What's a team that really needs a right shot defenseman? Mm. Drew Doughty for William Nylander. Boom! Bang. Such a, yeah. such a shameless hot yeah. take, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure, okay, okay. What do you think of that, Bill? I think you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't. Th- I don't think. Work on I don't. I don't think. I don't think the Kings make that trade in a million years. Mm. I. I really don't. I. I. You know. I mean, Drew Doughty is. He's one of their best. Pl- he's maybe their best player. Mm. Um, I mean, Kovalchuk probably has been a little more consistent this year, but Doughty is still a premier defenseman in this league. And as you say, a right shot D who's one of the best defensemen in the league. I don't think you trade that for a 20 year old kid who's sitting out. Yeah, I guess not. I mean, I'm not saying that they <laughs> will do it, but I'm just wondering, should they? I know teams don't think that way, but I don't know. Maybe LA has to start getting with the times, getting faster and understand that they're not going to be a cup contender for several years now. So we right. start thinking ahead for the future. That's just me. Right. Okay. I T- do. I toss do. in a bad contract. Yeah. It was like Drew Doughty and Dustin Brown. For Wait, which bad contract? Yeah, well, I'll take your pick. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot on that team. Uh, speaking of contracts, we don't know if these are good or bad contracts. That's why I want to ask you about it. Uh, first of all, Pekka Rene signs a two-year extension, $5 million cap hit with the Nashville Predators. We had talked a while about UC Soros having an opportunity. Uh, and he, we know he's signed for three years. He's only 23 years old. But it appears that Nashville wants to give Rene another couple years to be the starter as they're in this cup contention window. Do you think this contract is a smart decision for the Predators? For the Predators, yes. For Pekka Rene, I'm not so sure. Um, well, I think, you know, I mean, it's conceivable that he could win another Norris Trophy this year. Vesna? Uh, yeah. Well, he's, he's a good Duh. puck handler, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That he could win another Vesna Trophy this year. That's conceivable. He's, he's got great numbers so far this year. Yep. And, I mean, if he plays this way for the rest of the year, he will be a contender and maybe could win it again. I mean, so if he goes on the open market, even at the age of 37, with two Vezina trophies, you know, two, the two most recent Vezina trophies under his belt, I think he could have gotten more term and more money either from the Predators or elsewhere. Um, but this contract I like because it's not money that kills you, it's term. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have to worry too much about term on this one. They've got a two-year deal on a, on a pretty reasonable number, $5 million. It's only slightly above Roberto Luongo, who's three years older and has three years left on his deal. Um, you know, and this is a guy that, I mean, it's, it's a fit, right? Like he was, he's, he's a homegrown guy. He's played there all his career. He wants to win there. He wants to retire there. They want him there. I, I, I see this as being a really, like a really sharp deal and a really good deal by both sides. I think by the, you know, on the side of the player being very realistic about where he's at in his career and where things are going. And he's probably saying, you know, I like it here. I want to retire here. And the, and the team saying, okay, well, we can make this work. If, if you work with us. Yeah, and what I really like about it is the runway that it gives UC, UC Soros. Because Soros, uh, both cap hit and in terms of usage, because Soros is only going to be making 1.5 a year during that Rene extension. So by the time Rene's 5 million comes off the books, then you're dealing with Soros and saying, okay, well now you deserve three, five, seven, whatever it happens to be, however good Soros gets at that time. I think you're looking at a 23-year-old goaltender who is finding his way in the NHL. He's going to be your future starter. But I like how Nashville has protected themselves here. And I blogged on this for thehockeynews.com where you look at Pittsburgh right now, Matt Murray kind of all on his lonesome with Marc-Andre Fleury gone to Vegas last year. It's been a struggle, not only because of injuries, but just inconsistency. For Soros, we've seen a lot of good things from him, but the Predators are going to need to see more. They're going to need to see, you know, 50-game UC Soros. They're going to need to see, eventually, 65-game UC Soros. And having Rene there, particularly the last year of this contract extension, I think it's going to be super valuable for Soros. Maybe Rene only plays, like, 20 games that year. That's okay, because you're grooming Soros, and it just, it just makes so much sense. And remember, in Nashville, the goalie doesn't have to be great. He just has to be good. Yeah, with that defense yeah. in front of him. And I, I really do like the idea of Saros sort of taking the torch because at that cap hit $5 million, if Rene was still making $7 million, it almost compels the Predators to put their $7 million man in the starting position. But at $5 million, the cap's going to go up again, so $5 million even now is not even $5 million next year. And you never know, last year of the deal, it's a contract you could move if you really needed to in a trade. Because again, five mil, not, not that big of a cap hit. So it gives the flexibility now for Saros to overtake Rene if he plays well enough to, to earn the job before Rene's contract is up. Another contract that just got announced was a big extension for Yanni Gord, carries a 5.17 cap hit, I, I believe for six years with the Tampa Bay Lightning. 
Uh, and we know he was a great rookie, 25 goals as a rookie, got one first place Calder Trophy vote, Ken loves him. But here's the problem that I want to pose, and I wrote about this on our website as well. Tampa has 14 players signed next year for $72.4 million. Braden Point has earned a lot more than William Nylander, I would argue, so far in his career. Braden Point's going to be probably an $8 million player as a restricted free agent, and I don't know if there is currently room for Point because of the fact that the Gord deal was signed for first. So Julian Breesbaugh is going to have to do some real gymnastics, maybe trade a guy. What do you think of the contract, and what do you think Tampa should do with the cap crunch in the summer? Well, I, I think it's a really good deal because Yanni Gord's the greatest player who's ever lived, right? So, <laughs> so it, it, I, no, I do think it's a good deal. This is a team, you know, that has really been very good at identifying sort of diamonds in the rough, young talent, and putting a good value on them. So I, I have no problem with this deal. And I don't really think it's going to impact the Braden Point situation because he's a, he's a restricted free agent with no arbitration rights. So he has virtually no power. Um, he has virtually, virtually zero leverage in negotiations other than sitting out the way William Nylander is. Um, so what I see Braden Point doing is probably signing a bridge deal for less than he's probably worth and less than market value the way Nikita Kucherov did before he signed his big deal. Um, and, and so I think they can fit him in. I think they've got the culture there. They've got the, the team there that they can say to this guy, look, you know, we're trying to win this thing. Uh, are you on board? And, and I could see Braden Point saying, yeah, okay, let's, let's do the bridge deal for a couple of years. And then, and then when it's my payday, then, you know, you owe me big time. And that's, and that's all well and good. What I'd be more worried about in Tampa is how are they going to build this defense core? Yes. You know, they've only got three defensemen under contract next year, mm -hmm. Sergachev, Hedman, and McDonough. And, you know, that's where, that's where, like, the money has to come somewhere for those guys because you're either going to have to re-up Strawman and guys like that or you're going to have to go out and find somebody. And they've only got, like, you, you, and they've got to pray that the cap goes up by a substantial amount because they've only got $7 million to play with right now. Um, so, to me, I'd be a lot more worried about the future of this defense court rather than what they're going to do with Braden Point. Yeah, and... You know, if you look at what they've done this year in terms of roster construction with the forwards, they filled in quite nicely at the bottom end with Anthony Sorelli and Matthew Joseph, guys on entry-level deals yep. where they're making less than a million dollars. And I think they're going to have to do that on defense. I think with Anton Strawman, maybe you can say to him, like, hey, Anton, yeah. could you do maybe a million to stick around? You know, you're kind of at the end there. We've had some good times. How many more boats do you need? Yeah, How many more? You know. yeah. Give and him the real Brad Richards. Yeah, yeah, and then, you know, you need Slater Cuckoo to be a top six guy. Maybe you even need Cal Foote to step in as a rookie and right. take some bottom six minutes. These are all things that, I'll say this, if Tampa wins the cup, they all don't matter. Because then you can do pretty much whatever you need to do to get this roster cap compliant. Because you won the cup. Who cares? I mean, I think some of the things they have to consider already, trading Ryan Callahan. Now, he does have a limited no-trade clause. And he's at 5.8, and that's, that's a bad contract. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're going to have to say, we'll you know, trade you Ryan Callahan and a first for a seventh or whatever it happens to be. Steven Stamkos and Nikita Kucherov are both slumping right now. Steven Stamkos has three goals this year. Wow. Move him out. That's right. He's got Hot take. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Save it for later in the TV show. Good. Uh, Alex Kalorin, another like, you know, good player. And one you could move more easily than Callahan. Uh, his no-trade clause doesn't kick in for a couple of years, if I'm not mistaken. So there's options. They're not nice options. But, again, if, if you win the cup, it doesn't matter because you won the cup. That was the mission. If you don't win the cup, then you Really got to do it next year, and that's where things get really tricky for Breezeball. Fair. And to Ken's point, um, Braden Point's agent is Jared Johansson, and he also uh, works with Josh Morrissey, who did the same thing, took that bridge deal for the sake of deferring it because he's on a big contender team trying to win the cup. It is now fantasy insider time, and I never thought I would ever say this sentence. Go pick up Jack Campbell in your mm. fantasy league. I mean it. He has a great opportunity. I know the Kings aren't great, but they do have a coaching change coming in now. And volume matters in most pools. If you're, if you're in a pool that tracks wins, shutouts, saves, et cetera, et cetera, Campbell has a great opportunity. We know the pedigree was there. He was considered a pretty big bust as a first-round pick of the Dallas Stars. But he's still in goalie years. He's in his mid-20s. It's not like he's ancient. And he just has 
a great chance to prove himself. And Jonathan Quick's injury, torn meniscus, seems pretty serious. And for a goaltender, that's kind of injury that can linger. It can keep you out the entire season. So just Campbell, for opportunity reasons, warrants the pickup. Uh, next pickup I would advise, Jason Pominville. And this is one where you're picking him up with an idea of selling high later, okay? We know Pominville's playing with Jack Eichel, Jeff Skinner, and that line is on fire right now. They're just lighting it up. And Jason Pominville has turned back the clock, even though he's in his mid-30s now. I don't know if he's going to keep it up. I don't know if his body's going to hold up for a full season, but grab him now. He's available in more than 50% of leagues. Ride the wave and then sell high, maybe in another week or two, try and get another guy who's slumping, who you know has a good pedigree and will be better later on. Uh, last pickup is going to be Oscar Clefbaum with Edmonton Oilers. He was such a hot sleeper going into last season after he broke out two years ago, had a nightmare year, injury plagued, everything went wrong for him and the Oilers. But right now, Clefbaum is showing signs of waking up. The power play points have not been there just yet, but those should come. What's very intriguing is the even strength production has been very good, and we know Clefbaum gets the minutes. The volume's going to be there. He's playing 25 minutes, give or take, every night right now. And the Oilers, so far, look like they might be a pleasant surprise, so it's worth adding Clefbaum to find out. It's Future Watch time. Two prospects from Mr. Ryan Kennedy now. Okay, for the 2019 draft, I'm looking at Vasily Podkolzin. First came on the radar at the Holinka Gretzky tournament. He just went off for Team Russia. Eight goals, 11 points in five games. Uh, he's back in Russia now. Dynamic player, very strong on his skates. Uh, you know, did a mock draft in the magazine. I had him going to New Jersey at 12, saying, kind of got a little bit of Taylor Hall in him, just the way he streaks down, protects the puck. Uh, right now, he's actually playing in... Russia's version of the AHL. He started off the year in Russia's Junior League with SKA 1946, which is SKA St. Petersburg's junior team. Now he's playing for SKA's NEVA, uh, which is their AHL farm team. And I, I think this is a great experience because the junior team actually has quite a few good players. Uh, Kirill Marchenko, who's taken by Columbus in the draft. Ivan Morozov is a Vegas pick. Now Pod Colson is getting the chance to play against older competition. One point in six games, that's fine. He's getting used to the level. But I think he's a very dynamic player, and he could very well be top ten. Some folks, I think, even like him for the top five. So that'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Uh, for a drafted player, I'm looking at Eric Bronstrom, playing in the AHL for the Chicago Wolves, mm -hmm. nine points in nine games. I've always loved this kid because he leads the rush like he's a forward. And he is a great blue liner. A little undersized, he was one of three first-rounders that Vegas took in their very first draft, Cody Glass and Nick Suzuki being the other two. Uh, but Bronstrom, still eligible for the World Juniors, and Sweden, you know, they love to match up their puck rushers with their stay-at-home guys. I think Bronstrom could be a very nice weapon for them in Vancouver and Victoria. And, again, playing against men, I think it's great experience for him. Over here, you know, he, he got the chance to play against men back in Sweden, but getting used to the North American game, getting used to the smaller rink, for a guy that's not the biggest, I think this is really good experience for him because he'll have to take on contact. He'll have to learn to use that slipperiness he has and that speed he has in the best way possible. And I think it's just a really good fit for him with the Wolves. And who knows? I mean, maybe Vegas will give him a shot as soon as next year. That's what I was going to ask. What I'm wondering is, is, could he be this year's Shea Theodore, who gets the call later in the season, maybe for a stretch run? Do you think there's any chance that Branstrom does play in the NHL this year? It might be tough because don't forget Nate Schmidt will be coming back from suspension. So you got to look at the the line of succession there in Vegas. But, you know, it, it depends. I mean, if, if the Golden Knights are, are out of contention at the very end, maybe they give Bronstrom one game, just, you know, a, a little taste. Um, but I also think that you're going to want to see him in the playoffs with the Chicago Wolves playing big minutes and making an impact. But he could still do that if they're out, right? And, and certainly guys could. get hurt. Guys get hurt. That's I mean, true. they could have... You know, this time next week, they could have four defensemen injured. Yep. Not Fair. like they're goalies. Fair. <laughs> Fair. Uh, it's time for a little look at what's inside the magazine. The next issue we're doing is the superstar issue. And for all those people out there that say, oh, come on, Sidney Crosby and McDavid and Ovechkin are on every cover. Well, all three of them are going to be on the cover this time. This issue is all superstar, and it was very fascinating. We got really cool access to all the biggest names in the game. And Ken, I know you had a really cool experience working with Sidney Crosby of Jenny Malkin on his story, so yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Well, there, there, are, just, there are some days when you when you work in this industry that are, are much better than others. And, and I 
remember a lot of them when I when I used to cover the beat on a daily basis. The best days would be the the day after a game when when the team won when they were on the road. Um, and that's what happened here in Toronto uh, recently with the Pittsburgh Penguins. They had beaten the Leafs 3-1. They looked very, very good. The next day, I think they were going they were going somewhere else. They were going to, out west of Banff. Yeah, right. They were going out west of Banff. But the day, the Friday after that game, they, they, they practiced here uh, before they left. And they were staying here that night. Um, so it was a really, like sort of loose practice everybody was and then and then afterwards there was there was very little media there was you know it was just one of those days where they kind of were in the zone and they were happy and and so we were doing this piece with um on Sidney Crosby and I, and what I was doing was talking we we uh, we talked about people who have played with him and have have assisted on his goals or he's assisted on their goals and and I I picked out sort of random goals that 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 would illustrate you know his talents so i talked to, to i talked to malkin about one that they they did in uh, in arizona like eight years ago when uh crosby wins a face-off dishes to malkin malkin scores so i'm talking to malkin about it and he remembers it like it's yesterday right like he's going on and on about it and he's like oh yeah that was great and and, and so he talks about it and then he's walking by crosby and he goes show him goal so, so because I had my laptop there, so I showed I showed Sid the goal, and Crosby goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, that was the time Vern Fiddler got kicked out of the or uh, the guy got kicked out of the faceoff circle, and Vern Fiddler was there. And do you remember we were saying, you know, he, you were telling me to push it forward, and and they, they like they remembered everything. He says, "Yeah, that game was just before Christmas, right?" And I'm like. I don't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning. <laughs> and these guys remember these like minute like details from goals that were scored eight years ago. And it, and it was just it was just one of those sort of magic moments where it's like, you, you know, you're sitting there and you're, you're imagining what, you know, Einstein and Stephen Hawking would be talking about if they, were, you know, or, or, you know, I mean, somebody like these these sort of these prodigies in their sports, yeah, like sort of just, you know. just sharing this moment. It was, it was just one of those really cool kind of uh, times in our industry when you get to sort of peel the curtain back a little bit more. So it was, that was a lot of fun. Very cool. And you can find that story in the Superstar issue. It kind of goes really in-depth with Crosby, all those different goals and the guys that were involved on them. And we also have stories on Alex Ovechkin. We have a big story by Ryan, uh, the oral history of Connor McDavid, where he talks to all the people in McDavid's life, including McDavid himself, about sort of how he became the man he is today. So watch for that issue, superstar issue, on newsstands right now. Hot take time. Ken was away. The hot take master was away in a very hot place, and he learned some more hot things, apparently. <laughs> so just tell us what you've taken back from wherever you went. So the bride and I went to Arizona last week for a trip. And uh, by halfway through the trip, I, was, I, I had made enough concessions and was <laughs> able to convince her that I should be able to go to a hockey game, right? So Friday night, the Arizona Coyotes were playing in Glendale where they always play. And, uh, and so I, I was going to the game, and I was, uh, I was going with a friend who's a professor at Arizona State University. So on Friday night, I, the game's at 7, 20 after 5, I have to pick him up downtown, and then we, we have to go to the rink. I got to the rink. I left at 20 after 5. I walked in the doors through the media gate during the national anthem. Wow. And that, that is why the Arizona Coyotes will never, ever survive long-term in Glendale. They never will, okay? It's a nightmare to get to their games. And granted, I mean, you know, the, the problem in, in Arizona is they haven't really give them, given their fans a lot of reason to make that drive in the blinding sun going west in, in Arizona, right? So, I, I mean, there's that. You know, on the weekends, they draw okay. They draw 14,000, 15,000 on the weekends. During the week, like this Friday night, there's no way. If you work in Arizona and you're working till 5.30 and you work in the city, there's no way you're going to the game. And so that has a ripple effect all the way down, right? So if, if you know you're not going to go to the games and you know you can get a ticket, why would you ever buy season's tickets for this team? Why would anybody ever buy a season's ticket thinking, okay, I've got, to, I've got to do that 41 times a year, or I can just go when I feel like it and pick up a ticket whenever I want. So, right. so I mean, it, it's, it's, I think, 
personally. Like the, the, once you get there, it's wonderful. It's a great game experience. The team is really good. They're exciting. They're young. That whole Glendale area around the arena is great and everything. It's just getting there. And I think you know the the former former owner Steve Elman moved the you know went out to this to this outpost in Glendale in 2003. And in my opinion, that was one of the worst business decisions in the history of the NHL. And I'm not that's not hyperbole. That was a terrible business decision. And and this team, I don't know what they're going to have to do, whether it's with the, you know Arizona State University or maybe they can retrofit the walking stick resort arena where the basketball team plays and get ice equipment. Somehow they've got to get a new rink. I mean, the, the people of Glendale have paid for this team for far too long and gotten far too little in return. And it's time because if this team doesn't get a better place to play, it's, it's, it's going to have to move. There. And it's funny, it's sort of a chicken and egg situation because I always think, well, but no one's going to the games, so shouldn't there be no traffic going to the games? But no one's going to the games because there is the horrible traffic. Exactly. Right? And same thing with Ottawa. Ottawa has attendance problems. And the Brooklyn-era Islanders, same thing, because the Islanders fans that are usually closer in the Long Island direction trying to head to Brooklyn. So there's 12, a strong correlation 12, there. 12,000 in Ottawa the other night for, for Washington. 12,000. Wow. For the defending cup in, 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 a, in a Canadian city, 12, like think about that, 12,000 people in a Canadian city. Yeah, not good, not yep. good. It's mailbag time, and the first question is from Vili Penanen, or Penanen. I'll go Penanen. Hopefully I got it right, Vili. And Vili, he wants to talk. You can tell Vili's finished. He wants to talk Finnish goalies, okay? Yeah. So Vili says, is Miko Koskinen one of the missing pieces in the Edmonton Oilers puzzle? He has beaten Cam Talbot and showed he is an NHL goalie. Secondly is what should Boston do with Tuka Rask? So let's start with Miko Koskinen. Uh, he's interesting to me. He was a dominant goaltender in the KHL. He's got great size, and there's not a lot of pressure on him coming through. And we know Cam Talbot has been struggling dating back to last year. So I kind of think there is room for Koskinen to take over. I think that's why they brought him in in the first place. Yeah, yeah. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, he's a 30-year-old guy who's played, essentially played three NHL games. So I, I'm, I kind of think we're, you know, maybe jumping the gun a little bit here, um, but. I mean, Tim Thomas did it at that age, right? Came over and played played in Europe for a lot of years and then came over and, and start. So I suppose he could, but I mean, to, to sort of bank on that at this moment after three starts in the NHL, albeit, you know, one of them a shutout in some pretty good games. Um, I think we're a little early on this, but um, I mean, <laughs> desperation is what creates these situations, right? Desperation is what created the Devin Dubnik situation in Minnesota. They had nowhere else to go. They had nothing else they could do. They picked Devin Dubnik off the scrap heap and look at them now, right? So maybe this will be the, a similar situation born out of desperation. You think Cam Talbot's your guy. He's not doing it. You turn to this guy and you say, okay, well, let's see what you can do. And, and maybe he can run with it. Yeah, and I think the important thing about Koskinen in the short term is that He's helping the Oilers right now. And with Cam Talbot, it really just seemed like he got burned out in Edmonton. They played him too much. I mean, they got into the playoffs the one year, so it was kind of worth it in the short term. But then last year, we saw he fell back to earth. I think they're obviously trying to prevent that. And if Koskinen can run with the ball for a little while, then I think that really helps Talbot because not only does he get more rest, but also mentally he realizes that he doesn't have to be the guy every single night. And I think that mental component could be pretty big. So with Koskinen, I think, you know, if he only ends up playing 30 games, that's still really good for Cam Talbot and, by extension, the Oilers as a whole because we know that they have McDavid up front and they've got some really nice weapons. If they can get goaltending, that's a huge part of the equation that was missing last year. All right. And, okay, Tuka Rask time. Boston Bruins fans, I'm going to call you out. You do not deserve Tuka Rask anymore. Okay? He, last you time can't I checked, have nice things. Last time I checked, and you know what, Boston? You guys are winning everything. Like, Just get out of here with all your championships. The Red Sox again, come on. And the Patriots, yeah, those come plucky, on. Those plucky underdogs. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, Tuka Rask, last time I checked among qualified leaders, I think he's still, he's first or second all time in save percentage. He's a pretty good goaltender, and yes, he tends to tire as the season goes. That's why you brought in Yaroslav Halak, and yes, Yaroslav Halak may be outplaying him at times early on, but that's the whole point. You bring in a goalie who is capable of stepping in, getting hot. It does not mean that he supplants Rask. Not a chance. And I don't know. I mean, Rask, of course, he has his his ups and downs in his career, but if you, you have to look at the entire sample size. He's been one of the best 10 goalies in the league almost his entire career, 
And I do wonder if maybe he's just due for a change of scenery and, and maybe a chance to to stick it to Boston if, if, if they don't appreciate him. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I I really don't know what else to say because you kind of said everything I was Nailed thinking. It. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this guy has been an elite goalie in this league for the better part of the last decade. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think when you look at a goalie like that struggle, you kind of say you've got to give him a lot more leash than you would somebody else. And you know he's probably going to play his way out of it. He's probably one of the most competitive goalies in the NHL. For sure. um, he, you know, he really takes it, really takes it personally. He really, you know, he's, he really hunkers down. Maybe, maybe that's part of the problem. I, I guess the one thing is, 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 you know, at his age, is this a sign of, you know, the, 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 the decline? You know, is, is he starting to decline? And if he is, then you make sure that there's someone there like a Yaroslav Halak or maybe an upgrade. I mean, Yaroslav Halak, I mean, he's he's doing well this year, but I think he's – I'm not sure how reliable he is when you really need him. Um, but you have, to, you have to have a good goalie in your system, and you have to be grooming guys to come along and betress that. And, and I think that's, that's where the Bruins are at. You know, maybe, maybe Tuka Rask isn't a 65-game game a year goalie anymore. Maybe he's a 48-game goalie, you know, that kind of thing. And, but I still think this guy's got it. Yeah, for sure. And I think you know, the fact that Halak has played so well for them, that's all bonus. You know, the, again, just talking about Talbot and Edmonton, if Rask is getting more rest, if he's more focused and he knows that he doesn't have to be the guy every single night, then in the long term, that might help. And, I mean, with the Bruins, again, this is a team that's in a championship window. They have high expectations for themselves. They're going to need really good goaltending in the playoffs because they're probably going to have to go through Tampa and or Toronto before they even get out of the East, uh, before they even get out of the division. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that right now, like, don't worry. He's a good goalie, and, you know, Halak's helping out. Just go with it. Right, and I want to give a shout-out to Tuka Rask for doing something that I've never seen another goalie do. I was at a game once where he got absolutely shelled. He got pulled, and after the game, he came out and talked to me in a corner about why he got pulled. Usually, a goalie gets pulled, he's gone, and he doesn't want to talk to anybody. And he came out and just faced me, and I said, what happened? And he he told the story, and I don't know. I don't think you get that very often, and I thought that was a stand-up move by a non-stand-up goaltender, a butterfly goaltender. (laughs) Scott Darling did that last year, too, in in Toronto. He just just got absolutely shelled uh, just a couple of days before Christmas, and he was terrible, and he he came out and, and took the bullets. Fair enough. Yeah. So it's not just two grass. Okay, so I stand <laughs> But it is, it is rare. It is yes, rare. Yes, it's rare. And the next question is from Jeff Putnam. Putnam says, or Jeff says, we'll call him Jeff. Putsky, 88. Putsky. Putter. Putter. <laughs> Putter says, based on what you know, what would be your top five picks if you were redrafting 2017? And it is funny. Mm. I'll, I'll kick this off because a scout was actually asking me, you know, how long before you guys redraft and put Elias Pettersson first overall? And I was like, uh... Now? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's easy, right? I, I got to think. Yeah. I don't know how the rest would play out, but I'm pretty sure you got to go Elias Patterson, probably Mira Iskin in second. But what do you guys think? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I feel like this is a pretty loaded question. Yeah. Like, do you want us to say that Elias Patterson should have gone yeah. first? Okay, like, we'll is say his, that. Is his Twitter handle iHeartCanucks? <laughs> yeah. no. Okay, we'll say that Elias Patterson should have gone first. Okay, great. But, uh, I mean, you know, with all due respect there, Putzky88. <laughs> I hate your question. Oh. Like, I hate it. Putter's getting. I old. hate this question because come on, like two minutes ago, this 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 guy over here to my right, this Kennedy guy, was talking about Eric Brandstrom and 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 Glass and Suzuki. You haven't even played in the league yet. You yeah, know, what I mean, yeah. like there's a bunch of good players that that could find their way into this league and and be you know excellent players so i mean this is a question ask me okay in 2022 if you want to ask me this question that's fine don't ask me it in 2018 a year after the draft okay yes elias petterson should have gone first Duh. i think jeff button is, is elias petterson's mom's burner account <laughs> ah, yeah. uh for the sake of propriety i'll go through the exercise just for fun uh yeah elias petterson i would go first overall I, you know what, I would still go Nico Heischer second because um, he is a center and the chemistry he's had with Taylor Hall has been fantastic. You know, Hall uh, said in the summer, like, you know, he probably wouldn't have won the heart without Heischer as his center. And he thought that Heischer should have got more Calder consideration. Uh, after that, Miro Heskinen for sure. 
Uh, I would also go Kale McCarr at four. And then I would go Nolan Patrick, who did go second overall. I think, you know, even though Patrick hasn't put up stunning numbers, I think his complete game is very valuable. And, you know, he's playing on a, a Flyers team that has a lot of good forwards. So I, I still think Nolan Patrick is a very good option yeah. at five. He picked it up. He's picked it up lately too. Yeah, he's, he's he's starting to score a little more in the last few games. Yeah, so I think it's you know it's funny like that was supposed to be a bit of a down year in the draft, but you know with Pedersen becoming what he has so far, that's obviously obviously put a different shine on. And it. in ten years, we're going to be talking about should you know should uh, St. Louis's seventh round pick you know Vladislav right. blah 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 Skov or, or whatever <laughs> like should he because he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, you know. He's going to be in the Hall of Fame, so he should have been the first overall pick because yeah. he's some twenty-two-year-old guy who's playing in the KHL right now. who's going to come over and be great. So. Right. Fair. Yeah. Well, shout out to Ryan for not just crapping all over poor Jeff Putnam. And uh, sorry, Putter. <laughs> No, it's Putski, 88, Putsky, right Putsky, there. Putski, 88. Putski, 88. All right. Uh, well, to finish it off this week, we have something a little out of the ordinary for you. Uh, you guys probably know the actor Jay Baruchel. He created and wrote and was also acting in the movie Goon. You probably know him from the movie Knocked Up as well, and Million Dollar Baby, et cetera, et cetera. And he wrote a book about the life of being a fan and also sort of an autobiography about himself and his upbringing in Montreal called Born Into It, and I had a chance to talk to him. So this is Jay Baruchel, and I want to warn you, he has a potty mouth, ladies and gentlemen. We've bleeped it out as best we can, but it's also who he is and we love him for it. So this is Jay Baruchel. A uh, thing I'll ask you about is, I love, uh, it's funny, because I'm actually originally from Ottawa, so I'm very familiar with St. Hubert. And, uh, <laughs> that's right, pubes as you call it. Uh, absolutely. And, and the picture that you paint, I just thought it was so vivid and... It reminded, and I feel like it would remind so many Canadians of just the way you get geared up for a Saturday and you're waiting for people to come to the door, all that stuff. Uh, for sure. So, so I'm just wondering, um, what made you decide to sort of use that and launch into that as your intro? Um, well, the, the sort of whole kind of concept of like what the book should be was like based on me looking at my bookshelf and being like, what haves books don't exist, <laughs> and 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 Lord knows we don't need another history book, you know. And um, and I and I and I never I haven't played a single shift for the Montreal Canadiens, so I can't speak to what it's like playing for them. Um, but I I I saw what, an opportunity to create a sort of uh, fandom. Uh, counterpart or fan, fan, um, fandom answer to Ken Dryden's The Game, oh. which is this sort of macro experience of what it is to be a professional hockey player, um, and more specifically, what it is to be a, a half. And so, and and I, I was like, I, I think there's something kind of, uh, there's something kind of, if not important, at least at least worth articulating about uh, what what it is to be so deeply connected uh, emotionally and psychologically uh, to something over which you have absolutely zero control. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 I had the feeling because I've watched hockey in you know every city I've been to in Canada at some point I've watched hockey at someone's house or someone's hotel room or something and it was and I saw the same dynamic play out everywhere and so I was like this experience of having a bunch of friends over and you know a crowded room with a bunch of greasy food I was like I get the feeling I have a I have a suspicion that this is a thing and uh, and I felt like it was something that I hadn't heard or read um, kind of articulated like that and and so my my every everything I know about hockey and the entirety of my connection to hockey is as a fan you know I, I, I don't have the sort of um, uh, skating on the pond every day of my life uh, Canadian sort of hero's myth uh, origin story um, but what I do have is growing up in this country, and and if you grow up in this country, hockey for ninety percent of the population, hockey is um, less uh, a sport you follow than it is just uh, it's like breathing or uh, the weather. It just is there always, and so I was like 
really had a feeling that I, I, I you know, all, all, all this time done in my living room and in my friends' living rooms was something that was probably um, probably something that a lot of Canadians experienced. That I thought it might be it might be worth putting down. For sure, excellent. Um, and this question, it sort of applies to, to that experience, but I think it applies to you as an actor in general. And I think if you compare you, and I've always thought this about you um, from afar, but if you compare you to, let's say, you know, Seth Rogen or Ryan Gosling or, or other Canadian, or Rachel McAdams, whatever, different Canadian actors and writers, I find you more than others seem to embrace your Canadianness. Um, okay. Yeah, and I always wonder if that's a conscious decision that you've sort of decided to to hold on to that more than some types that, because I know you're very, uh, you've talked a lot about your love for your roots in Montreal, all that kind of stuff, and of course this book, and Dune, etc., etc. So I'm curious for you, is that a thing you think about consciously? Um, it's a, I would have to give the, the annoying yes and no answer. Um, the, 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 I'll start with the no, which is I, I, I was just raised in an incredibly patriotic family. You know, I, I know that there are families um, in uh, there are families in Canada, which are basically just uh, the households are incubators for future Americans, <laughs> and 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 that the sort of brass ring is uh, inevitably lies outside this country. Um, that was never, ever, ever remotely the narrative in my family. Quite, quite the opposite. And I suspect there's a bunch of reasons why, starting with um, my granddad and a bunch of my uncles uh, were servicemen. And so we, you know, we served this country for, for generations. And, um, and the, the patriotism um, wasn't nonsense. Um, and, and so I was raised to believe that I was growing up in the best country in the world. So, um, and, and, but also as, as, as a sort of patriotic Canadian growing up in the 90s in Quebec, um, you know, <laughs> smack dab in the middle of the fucking, ref, you know, of which was the, the referendum, nice. your, your, your patriotism is kind of, uh, it's like a baptism by fire. You know, you, you, you are, it, especially if you grow up in the neighborhood, neighborhoods that I grew up in, and from out in my, um, as a kid in Montreal, um, you kind of, um, your Canadianness is, I won't say constantly under threat, but, but you, you are constantly aware of it. Sure. And um, uh, because it dictates what newspaper you read and it dictates what, where you're going to vote and all that stuff. And, you know, for God knows how long, Quebec has, every Quebec election has been dictated by one, pretty much one issue, right? But mm-hmm. pretty much up until this last, this last one. Um, so I, I, and then when I was 18, I, I started working down in the States. And so I was dropped into, and the, and the States that I went down to, I, 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 I started working in, a, in Los Angeles in the, uh, in the midst of the Bush-Gore uh, election nonsense in 2000 or whatever. And, and then shortly after that was, uh, you know, September 11th, and then, the, and then the war in Iraq. And I, 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 it was a very, very uh, tumultuous time in America. And it sort of, to be dropped in the middle of it, um, yeah, it just kind of, um, it, 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 it sort of vulcanized my, uh, my patriotism, I guess, to, for like, and this is not to take anything away from people, you know, I, I'm not trying to shit on somewhere else. I'm just trying to say that I came from Quebec and then I was dropped into the States. And um, I, there was basically one of two options. I was either going to have no patriotism whatsoever or, or I was going to be um, as patriotic a Canadian as has ever been seen. And, um, and then the, the sort of yes part of it is that a conscious decision would be, the, the, the yes of it would come from a lifetime of being proud of Canadians that were like in movies and on TV shows and stuff like that. Um, but also being painfully aware that I never saw them in Canada or on Canadian television um, un- until they stopped working a lot in the States or whatever the hell. And so I, um, and I, and it was a kind of a crummy takeaway, you know, and I, and I was like, um, it, 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 I, I don't want to be that. And 
and I and I because I still you know I'm 36 and I still believe I was born and raised in the best country in the world. I still live here to this day, and so I and I think that like I don't know. I, I felt like. I'm not trying to compare. <laughs> I'm not trying to compare my like semen stain scenes she's out of my league to anything <laughs> that my uncles or granddad did. But if I can somehow fucking represent and wave the flag, um, you know that that's that's the I'll do it whenever I can. Yeah. <laughs> do it in your own way. Make your mark. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's it exactly. That's right. It's funny too. You mentioned the referendum. I always think of it as did we dream that? It was so close to vote. <laughs> I can't yeah, I, I, I try to tell people, people don't realize, like, I, uh, I have a bunch of friends in Scotland, and I was there shortly after their referendum a few years ago, and they were all going on about how close it was, that it was 60-40, and I was like, that's not close. Especially the passages where you talk about your dad and, and you're and losing your dad, and uh, and you make that metaphor about the, the late nineties uh, uh, hats. Yeah. Um, and was it was this kind of experience like was it cathartic for you to share these thoughts, or was it was it difficult, or what is it like just kind of um, I guess bearing your soul is the term I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for saying that. Um, it was difficult in that. Um, I have a hard time talking about myself. Like I, I would just rather talk about something else, um, the history or hockey or politics or music or movies or you know, there's a million things I'd rather talk about uh, with people than me. Um, and uh, so, so kind of dealing with that was something I wrestled with, you know, pretty much the whole time. Um, the, but yes, it was incredibly cathartic because, like, I, I, you know. I hadn't spoken to my father in five years when he passed away. And so um, it kind of goes without saying that there was a shitload of unresolved stuff. And I, um, writing the book, writing the chapter about him, um, giving him this sort of context of his own um, allowed me to kind of bury my hatchet and forgive and and let go of a lot of stuff. Um, Because I was finally able to you know, up until I wrote that, every sort of thought I'd had about my father was um, as his son. And when I and when I wrote that chapter, I was able to see him as my father, but also just as a man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, outside of uh, my connection to him, you know, and so it it is kind of bittersweet. And I don't let him get I don't let him off the hook. But I also. Um, uh, was able to try to give him give him a context that was a, a, allowed me to maybe maybe understand him at least forgive him. Right, and that's what I wondered because I noticed he was, the book was dedicated to him still. So I thought that's why I wanted to ask: Did you sort of find a, a degree of peace? You know? Oh, definitely, definitely, and and. I, I I also dedicated the the first goon to to my dad at the very end, like one of the last credits at the end of the find the closing credits is uh, for Sarah's Bear Shell. So I I, I um I have I, I have never it's never been black and white. Like I've never just fucking it's never been all negative, right? Because that's 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 what it is. That's what makes family complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and um, but I I because I also know that. You know, um, I a, a lot of my life and a lot of me um, just isn't there if I have a different dad, and so I and, and stuff that I'm proud of. You know, um, my you know if I'm sort of remotely uh, confident or stubborn, um, it's it's because of him, and that's uh, and that's how and that's like it wasn't just uh, it's not just genetics. It's also how he raised me. You know, uh, the bit of raising me that he did. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I, um, I definitely like was able to, uh, to to sort of let go a bit, and 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 yeah, the, the, of course the book is dedicated to him because 
um, it's a book about me and the Habs, and um, and and my connection to them, you know, starts firmly, squarely with my father. For sure. Um, well, well, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. I know it's probably not an easy topic. So, yeah. Um, what was it like for you? Because I know, and I, I can identify with this kind of thing where you walk away from the team briefly, and it's just when they finally have the window where they win the Stanley Cup. So you sort of felt like you didn't, you didn't get to soak in and experience the the hoisting the cup in '93. Does that still haunt you today? It does, but I also it it, it does, but. I also don't mind it because it would be somewhat disingenuous of me to um, to let that you know like my haps are not those haps, <laughs> and my experience as a haps fan, um, there are no dizzying heights. There, there is no sort of like you know uh, who's next. But, you know, uh, my my haps is like. A very very hand-to-mouth fighting to make make it into eight, and that's been my experience. And the Yambuza, right? The Yambuza, <laughs> precisely. <laughs> the, the golden age of Jan Bulis' tenure in the Habs. Yeah, exactly. The Yambuza era, and and I like, I kind of, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> as a huge surprise. I, I, you know, see myself as a, something of an underdog or, or, uh, or whatever the fuck. And so it makes sense. It would be hard to root for a team that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to. I would like to, but I also know that this is, um, this is the most, uh, to, to, to grow up in, in sort of the 90s Montreal and then some, this is the team. If, if, if the Habs are, you know, connected in something of a spirit animal to Montreal, um, the Montreal I grew up in, uh, it makes perfect sense that we had the Habs we have. <laughs> awesome. Um, one section of the book that I thought was really creative that I really uh, made me laugh a lot was the emails, like the emails to the Leafs, the emails to the Bruins and, and the Nordic. So I'm, I'm curious what gave you the idea to sort of, I assume they weren't real emails that you sent, they were sort of dramatizations, but uh, I guess fill me in on, on what gave you the idea. Um, well, like, I, I know that like, so much of being a Habs fan, and I suspect um, so much of being any, a fan of any sports team, but really specifically with the Habs is, there's a real strain of pettiness through it all. <laughs> and, and, like, there's a lot of Habs fans who, like, if given the option, like, would you rather uh, win the Stanley Cup, uh, but then, you know, the, the Leafs have a high draft pick, or would you rather the Leafs have the worst season ever, and, but at the cost of that is you guys have the second worst season ever. I think most people, a lot of Habs fans would rather just see the Leafs if they were the Bruins fucking implode. <laughs> And so a lot of Habs fandom comes from this sort of othering, <laughs> and we are we are defined not just by our history and our and our differentness. We're also defined by um, how much we fucking detest our rivals. And 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 so I was like, and and, and by the way, that's the like highest form of admiration and respect you know like if we don't hate you that means you're not worth hating <laughs> so, so it's the highest you know in in the sort of binary adversarial uh world of of hockey to hate to hate somebody is to fear them is to respect them and so these three teams have like there are few few sweaters i hate more than the three that i really emails to <laughs> and um but also, really, with like, it's so stupid. It all started from me at my computer making myself laugh at um, the fake email address I came up with. <laughs> so, so I am like, I was so, for some reason that that's that's really that was like, I, I wish it was something cooler than that. But it was like, um, a fake email for the purposes of this conceit at Hotmail or whatever or whatever the fuck I wrote. I want to look at it now. I have it here. I want to find it now. <laughs> I've got it. Like it's like J at fake email for the purposes yeah. of this conceit.com. I think it's. <laughs> I remember laughing as I read it. Now I can't. Of course, now I can't find it. Now I'm under pressure. I'm flipping. But I'll, I'll find it after. But 
Uh, yeah, I know your time's precious here, so I, I think I have one more question for you. Um, and I know you uh, you don't want to spoil because you outline it in, in more detail in the book, and it's obviously the inspiration for Boone, but can you just elaborate your Coles Notes version of why you are generally pro-fighting and what it means to you? Yeah, um, it's it's because I, I don't want to be... Uh, I, I, there's a few things that I hate more than liars or hypocrites, and and I am, and I try my best to not be that. Um, and and so I, I, it would be incredibly, um, yeah, it would it would be pretty pretty disingenuous and hypocritical of me to uh, to be against it when um, I found it as exhilarating as I have my entire life. Um, I, I don't remember a time where I was watching since I don't remember a time um, where I was watching hockey where the fighting wasn't a big deal. Um, it was always something that excited the hell out of both my parents. My mother would go way harder and way crazier about them than my dad, um, and and all my friends as well, man. And and I was a season ticket holder at the Bell Center for two seasons, and I can tell you that like when when there's a real tilt happening. It's fucking electric in the stadium, and it's and it's like matched only by um, matched only by a goal scored in the postseason, you know. And, uh, and 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 in terms of in terms of twenty one thousand people, basically all rooting for the same fucking end. And um, and I think that you know since the very first fucking time hockey was ever played indoors in Canada. Dudes fought each other. There was a Donnybrook in the very first, uh, uh, you know, indoor game ever. Um, I think it is a pure distillation of the drama that, and the conflict that you paid to see, right? So if you're watching, if you're paying, if you're sit, if you're sitting down to watch Toronto Montreal, well, there is sort of like no pure example of that conflict unless a player from each team. Uh, agrees to go to square up with with one another, you know. Um, h- however, however, I how can I argue? You know, in I, I, I can't I can't argue in its favor. I can argue that I've enjoyed it, right. and that and and you know and and so like so it's like it's one of these things. Right? I, I although I I do think it begs mentioning that there's a lot of conflating of uh, sort of cheap shots and headshots and boarding and all these fucking horrid injuries that come from that stuff, I think that gets conflated with, you know, what happens um, when guys fight for a long time. Now, obviously, long-term damage to a brain is long-term damage to a brain, period. And and if it's better for the players for there to be no fighting, then that's that's the end of the debate, right? Like, that's that, that's it. I can't, I can't be... I'm going to sit here and be pro-concussion, right? Like, yeah. that's insane. Um, however, it still fucking was there and is there and has been for the whole fucking time. And and to and whether you uh, are pro fighting or anti fighting, you can't ignore the fact that it has been intrinsically uh, part of hockey. And if hockey is like Canada's kind of greatest art form or the greatest sort of thing we've ever we've exported to the world or, or the greatest our greatest cultural export to the world. Well then, that means it's authentically Canadian, and if fighting is a part of that, well then that means the fighting is authentically Canadian as well. And I think that that's that's something that Canada uh, Canada's consciousness has wrestled with for quite some time because it has a hard time reconciling the Canada it feels on the street and when it turns on the CBC, and it, which is sort of pragmatic and mild. And and then and, and yet and yet, how is there um, such a culture of fisticuffs in this country and has always been, right? You know, and I think that that sort of that kind of cognitive dissonance has, has you know, a lot of people have grappled with that. So I um, it, 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 so so to summarize, really, I just always found it fucking entertaining as hell. And 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 I was raised to believe that this is part of how we play hockey in this part of the world. Um, and I do think that, um, you know, I, I was interviewed in that movie Ice Guardians, um, it was a real good flick, and, and, I, and I said something to the effect of, in that movie, I said something to the effect of, um, it, it's, it's, it's fighting, there has always been people that enjoy it, 
and people that don't that find it distasteful. And now, the people that find it distasteful have sort of evidence to support their distaste for it, but they never liked it to begin with. And I think it really is like it's a, it, it is both uh, a taste issue and a medical one. But at, at the end of the day, I'm not a hockey player and I'm not a fucking doctor, and so it's like who, who cares what I think? About it? It's like. So I, I I will miss it, you know. But but uh, but if but if if the world thinks it's not, you know, if it, if it, you know, if history has decided that 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 the year is done, then so be it. For sure. Well, uh, well argued. Very good answer. And, and it's funny, like you, when you think about the Canadian institution and the getting ready on a Saturday. And one thing I always remember as part of it is the guy who's in the bathroom or who's in the other room, and everyone has to yell, "Fight! Fight! Fight!" to get the person to come back. Right, because yeah, people man. are that excited. Like yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the thing. Like I, I, I can't deny, and I, and I have no reason to deny how fucking um, how psyched up it gets you, you know. And 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 I do think that like just because there isn't necessarily a statistic to prove its effect, its effectiveness, I I, I don't think that that means it is without effect. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I have I we have all seen. The you know sort of momentum uh, and and tenor of a game shift after a fight you know sh- shift in the favor of the uh, you know the teammate of the team who won the fight you know we that that, that that's not nothing to me so yeah yeah excellent well, it's very true call the adrenaline right it gives you the surge that's it man that's exactly that's that's exactly it but but I also feel like I'm probably on the wrong side of history with this one but I yeah. I, I also like I can't help how I was raised. Okay, thanks so much, Jay, for that time. And I hope you enjoyed it, everybody, this week. Go to thehockeynews.com to learn about our membership program, and we will be back soon.